0: Hey folks, Pattern is a disability insurance company and they know that you wanna be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk free. So, request your quotes today at patternlife.com. That's P A T T E R N L I F E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. And today we're going to talk about IV fluids and how you should be using them perioperatively. Remember, you can find all of the ACRAC podcasts as well as some show notes at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. You can also leave comments if you have any thoughts on the episodes, things you thought were incorrect, things you particularly liked, anything you'd like to see me cover in future episodes. You can also email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. And you can join our mailing list at ACRAC.com, upper right-hand corner of the website. Click there, put in your email address, and you will get notifications whenever there's a new episode, as well as any newsletters or interesting things on the topics of anesthesia and critical care that I think are worthwhile to send out. I don't do that often. In fact, I haven't done it yet, but it may happen in the future. Don't worry, you won't be overwhelmed by frequent emails from me. Before we get to the main topic, IV fluids, I have some very exciting things to share with you. I had a wonderful vacation, went out west with my family to Portland and Seattle to visit some friends and to visit my brother in Seattle, and we had a really great time. And having a week of vacation gave me a chance to catch up on some of the podcasts that I really love and haven't had time to get to. I have to tell you, my brother recommended to me, and I want to recommend to you this incredible podcast. It's by Malcolm Gladwell. Of course, I'm sure everyone's heard of Malcolm Gladwell, the author of books such as Blink and David and Goliath. But this is a podcast season that he did this past year. It's absolutely fascinating. And he talks, it's called Revisionist History, Revisionist History. And each episode, he goes back and revisits something that he thinks was either misinterpreted or not examined well enough at the time that it happened, some of these are farther back and some are very recent. And it's really quite interesting to give you an example. He talks about how Wilt Chamberlain in one episode, he talks about kind of this idea of, uh, of what makes somebody great at sports. And he talks about Wilt Chamberlain and how he had this one game where he shot, over a hundred points in one game. And that's a record that's never been broken. And it's considered by some to be the greatest basketball game ever played, played in Hershey, Pennsylvania, by the way. But interestingly, he, that season, even though he was scoring an enormous number of points, was one of the worst foul shooters of all time. He, he had a really hard time making free throws from the foul line. And he was somewhere around 30 or 40%. So he decided to try doing what this other uh, professional player at the time, who was one of the best foul shooters in the whole league, Rick James, was doing. And Rick James shot his foul shots underhand, what what you probably grew up calling old granny style. But Rick James was one of the best foul shooters in the entire NBA. And so Will Chamberlain decided to try it. And on the night that he shot 100 points or over 100 points in that game, he made 28 of 32 Foul shots. This is a guy who normally would have made 12 if he was shooting 40%, but he shot 28 of 32 from the free throw line. That's almost 90%. And he did it because he started shooting granny style. He wouldn't have had his 100 points if he hadn't done it. He had done it in some other games leading up to that game, and he was a much, much better foul shooter. He shot over 60% instead of 40%. And then in this one game, 90%, and yet. What did he do afterwards? He never did it again. He went back to his old regular overhand shot and only shot 40% or worse. And when they asked him why, he said, I know it was the wrong thing to do. I know I should have kept doing it underhand. I would have got scored more points, been a better contributor to my team, won more games. And then they asked him, well, why didn't you do it? And his answer was because He felt like a sissy. That was it. He felt like a sissy. That's why he didn't do it. Pretty amazing. Similarly, Malcolm Gladwell goes on to tell the story of the fact that research in the game of football has shown that if teams in the NFL draft would trade down their their draft picks, in other words, they'd give up a first round draft pick for multiple second round draft picks, which teams never do. They do the opposite. But if they did that they would actually win an extra game a year. Those players that are less valued in the second round draft, if you look at all the players ever drafted and the value they've brought to their teams, they end up being cumulatively much more valuable than that first round draft pick. And the other thing that's been shown definitively by this by these researchers looking at football is that if teams were to never punt, if they went for it on fourth down every time, they'd win another game and a half every season. So can you imagine they'd win a game by trading down drafts and a game and a half by never punting? That's two and a half games a season that teams could win on average just by doing these two things. And guess how many teams have taken these researchers up and tried their model? I'm sure you got it. Zero. Because it's just not how it's done. And obviously, this can apply directly to medicine as well. We do things the way they've always been done. We learn them, we do them that way. And it takes a monumental amount of effort to get anyone to change their mind. We see this all the time in ourselves, in other people, other doctors. And it is, it's amazing we've made any change at all. But certainly we need to think hard about why we do what we do. And if the reason is because it's always been done that way or doing it this other way is not quite as flashy or doesn't seem as impressive or doing it the, the good or safe way makes us seem like a sissy... Maybe we need to think really hard about whether that's the important thing. You see this, for example, sometimes in using ultrasounds for line placement. You've got some veteran physicians who think they don't need the ultrasound. The evidence is clear that the complication rate is less. It's safer for patients to use the ultrasound. And yet, they've always done it without. They think they can do it just fine without. And I'll bet even if they don't admit it, there's a little bit of, I don't look good. It's more macho if I just do it blind, it doesn't look as macho if I use the ultrasound, not what we should be using as our metric. So Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History, that's just one little example of an episode, but there are many, he does maybe nine or 10 episodes in the season, and really every episode was interesting, it'll make you think, it's fantastic. One other thing to check out, The Lancet, published on August 16th, just last month, a trial uh, that showed that dexmedetomidine, when used for prevention of delirium in elderly non-cardiac surgery patients post-op in the ICU, actually was successful in preventing delirium. And this is really significant. I recommend you go to The Lancet, check it out. It's by uh, authors, first author's last name is S.U., so Sue and colleagues, published on August 16th in The Lancet. And again, this is the first time that something has really fairly definitively been shown to work for prevention of delirium. These are high-risk patients for delirium because they're older, they just had surgery, and they're being admitted to the ICU. So they either had a big surgery or they've had some major blood loss and a lot that's gone wrong. So they're in the ICU, they're older patients, they're high, high high-risk for delirium, but they haven't developed delirium yet. They get started on low-dose Presidex, and it turns out that they have a significantly lower rate of developing delirium. There were 700 patients in this trial, 350 in each arm, and they were put on just a low dose of Presidex, just 0.1 mics per kilo per hour. And that started right on admission to the ICU, and it went uh, until the next day, so 24 hours. And they showed a significant reduction from 23% in the placebo arm that got just a saline drip down to 9% in the Presidex group in terms of developing delirium within the first seven days in the ICU. So pretty significant. Check out the paper and see what you think. All right. Took a lot of time sharing with you all of these things that I got excited about on my vacation. But now let's move on to IV fluids. And talk a little bit. Now, this is not going to be comprehensive in every possible way. Obviously, there are entire books and journal articles and uh, lectures dedicated to various pieces of this, but I'm going to try to distill it down to what I think is most clinically significant uh, for you to know around this topic. This uh, lecture and the slides that I'll post on the website are taken uh, primarily from a couple of uh, sources. There's a great review article from 2013 in the New England Journal by Myberg and Mythen called Resuscitation Fluids. And it's a great article. Take a look at it. And then uh, also from Miller's Anesthesia, 8th edition. So the history of this, uh, interestingly, long ago, so in 1832, a man named Robert Lewins, a physician, said... Uh, while well, he was treating patients during the cholera epidemic, that the quantity of fluid needed will probably be dependent upon the amount of serum loss to, re- to return them to the state they were at. In other words, fluid resuscitation should be just to get people back to euvolemia, and we need to be careful to avoid hypervolemia. This was known back in the 1830s, and yet we still have a hard time with this, and we often over-resuscitate, and we'll talk more about that. Paul Merrick, who is a fantastic uh, and prolific writer, researcher, and physician, uh, has said on multiple occasions that sepsis, for example, is not a hypovolemic state. People who are septic, in his opinion, they haven't lost the fluid. It's still in them unless they're vomiting or having profuse diarrhea, and so we shouldn't be resuscitating them with fluid. So he's really on one extreme, but this is just to demonstrate that there are there is a lot of debate going on currently about this. And one of the big topics, for example, at the Society of Critical Care Medicine conference last year was de-resuscitation. So really working on trying to not overdo the fluid resuscitation. We're starting to recognize more and more damage that can come from fluid resuscitation. So the human body is about 60% water. It varies by age. So a neonate is about 80% water. Whereas a uh, adult male is about sixty percent, an adult female about fifty percent, and old people, both male and female, are about fifty percent as well. And that's because adipose tissue holds less water than muscle mass. And as we all learned in medical school, the body water is divided between an intracellular and extracellular compartment. And if you take away the portion that is sequestered, so of the extracellular compartment, there's a portion that doesn't really communicate back and forth it's kind of tied up in bone and connective tissue if you take that out then what you're left with is the portion of the body water that can communicate and that participates in transfer of various substances and that's where we get the icf the intracellular fluid being two to one in its ratio to the extracellular fluid so the ratio icf to ecf two to one and that's ignoring the sequestered portion of the ecf of non-sequestered extracellular fluid, about one-fourth is intravascular. And so that's where we get the one-fourth, three-fourths of how much of, for example, a bolus of normal saline stays intravascular. There's also, interestingly, and a you've probably heard of this concept or this part of the body called the glycocalyx. The glycocalyx was not something that I was taught in medical school, I don't think it had been discovered at that point, or if it had been, it certainly had not made it into our classes, but more and more is being discovered about this glycocalyx, and it's a layer on the inside of the endothelial lining of the cells, and it's made up of various um, proteoglycans and other molecules, and it creates an equilibrium that prevents plasma proteins from leaking out in, through the endothelial cells and out of the blood vessels, and therefore also maintains the oncotic pressure, keeping the fluid intravascular. But when that is damaged, then proteins can leak out and fluid can follow. So there's in a healthy glycocalyx, there is a portion of fluid that is called the subglycocalyseal layer, and that's the layer right Amidst the glycocalyx, lining right up against the the endothelial lining that is kind of held in place by the glycocalyx, and that represents about two percent of the functional extracellular fluid. So this glycocalyx plays a really important role uh, in maintaining vascular integrity and intravascular volume, preventing third spacing. And there's some interesting evidence that it can be damaged in a variety of ways including by excessive fluid administration. And it's thought that one of the possible mechanisms for this is that excessive fluid causes release of cardiac natriuretic peptides, which those peptides can actually cause breakdown of the glycocalyx. If you think about it, that actually makes sense that when the heart thinks that the body is volume overloaded and the heart wants to get rid of fluid, that one way it can do that is to cause breakdown of the glycocalyx, which then leads to the leakage of fluid out of the vessels and returns the heart to what it thinks is normovolemia. So a really important question is, how do we decide if a patient needs fluid? Well, for a long time, and what I was taught, and what you may have well been taught, was perioperatively, we calculate on a milligram per kilogram approach for MLs per kilo for the first 10 kilos, two for the second 10 kilos, and one for every kilo above that, figure out what their fluid deficit is and give them that back, and then figure out what their ongoing maintenance need is and give them that. Well, it turns out that that's probably a terrible way to do it. So, using that ML per kilo approach has been shown to lead to greater amounts of fluid being given overall. And when that amount of fluid exceeds about three and a half to five liters in the entire perioperative period, it leads to increased morbidity and mortality. So probably not the best way to do it. So how do we decide? Well, it's not just looking at vital signs because loss people can lose up to 25% of their blood volume and not have any change in their vital signs. Urine output people look at, but again, urine output is not a great marker. Urine output is often reduced, especially post operatively, even in the presence of totally normal blood volume because of ADH secretion and ramp up of the renin-aldosterone-angiotensin system. So and by, and that's by the stress of, of the surgery. And so you can't say because the person has low urine output that they need fluid, though we do this all the time. People all the time will say the patient has only made 10 or 15 cc's of urine an hour for the past two hours. We better give them a bolus and you don't have evidence backing you up if you take that approach. CVP, we know is not a good way to do it. It's influenced by venous compliance, which changes in low volume states so that, you can be fairly low volume, but with very rigid a ve- ve- venous system, low compliance in the venous system, and have a normal or even high CVP. Now, a very low CVP is probably helpful in the sense that if your CVP is one or two, you probably are not hypervolemic. And CVP trends, if everything else stays normal, stays the same, may be useful. But in general, CVP, not a great way either. And so what should we do? The answer is we don't really know. We know that goal-directed therapy, so rather than just giving a set amount of MLs per kilo to patients, actually tailoring therapy to that patient is beneficial. Now, a Cochrane review in 2012 found that using a goal-directed therapy approach reduced mortality and hospital length of stay, but there are a variety of ways to do this. Looking at vitals is one way, but again, we talked about how that may not be accurate. Looking at cardiac output, but again, you have to have a way to measure cardiac output. Looking at stroke volume variation, looking at pulse pressure variation. There's a lot of ways to try to get a feel for whether an individual patient needs fluid. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through all of these because there are many, many papers written on each one, and none of them is perfect. But in general, the idea is that it is better to try to target your fluid to an individual patient. And probably, it's going to be using multiple ways of figuring this out. Of course, you're going to pay attention to the vitals, but you're also, maybe we'll put an ultrasound probe on and look at the IVC. You may also look at your A-line tracing and whether there's respiratory variation. You may also examine the patient and see what their mucous membranes look like. So there's a variety of ways you're going to do this, and putting that all together is going to give you an idea of whether an individual patient needs fluid. When they've looked at The difference between a goal directed therapy strategy and just to give everyone the same amount per kilo strategy, they find that actually some patients in the goal directed therapy get more fluid. It's usually colloid, but because it's targeted, it's a targeted fluid, it's not just given indiscriminately, they do better. One way to avoid excess fluid intraoperatively, and a really important thing to keep in mind is that if your patient is hypotensive after induction or during a case, and you think part of the reason, which it almost always is, is due to your anesthetic causing peripheral vasodilation, giving a bolus of fluid for this purpose doesn't make any sense. You're not replacing fluid the patient has lost. You're giving fluid because they're vasodilated. So what you want to do instead is address the vasodilation. Use pressors. Use phenylephrine. Use levophed counteract the vasodilation that you're causing with your anesthetic, it will prevent you from using a whole lot of fluid to try to correct that hypotension, and your patient will do better. So why do we care about this? Why not just give fluid? Well, as I said, patients don't do as well. Multiple studies have shown that patients who get, are able to maintain an even fluid balance perioperatively do better. After Even patients who come in, for example, in septic shock, after their initial resuscitation, if they maintain a positive fluid balance as opposed to maintaining an even fluid balance, they do worse. A positive fluid balance after the initial resuscitation, so ongoing gaining of fluid, patients do much worse. In ARDS, clearly the drier the patient can be and still be hemodynamically stable, the better they do. So it's really important for all comers in the ICU, for septic patients, for ARDS patients, and probably for any patient coming to the operating room with us, that we not overdo their fluid resuscitation. The edema that can be caused, the breakdown of the glycocalyx leading to leaky vessels, the edema around anastomoses, all of this can cause breakdown, as well as poor wound healing and higher risk of infection. You'll hear all the time. As surgeons will say they don't want any pressors because they're worried about their anastomoses, but again, this doesn't make sense. Sure, you probably want to avoid high dose vasoconstrictors, but using low dose levofed, 0.02 to 0. 0.04, maybe even a little higher, is not going to compromise any anastomosis. If anything, it's going to improve cardiac output and do a better job of perfusing those anastomoses, and preventing the use of excessive fluid is going to prevent edema that will compromise blood flow to those anastomoses or grafts. There's a couple special cases I'll mention. So in free flap surgery, this is an example of where you'll hear even more from surgeons that they want you to avoid pressors. But again, excess fluid is going to cause more harm to those grafts than low-dose pressors for sure. Hepatic resection. So this is an interesting case. Hepatic veins don't have valves, and so there's nothing to stop back bleeding, continuous back bleeding from the IVC down through the hepatic veins. And so clamping the inflow doesn't help because it can just keep bleeding back. And that's why surgeons doing a hepatic resection will want you to keep the CVP low, or if you're not measuring CVP, keep the patient fairly dry to prevent that back pressure. And in fact, there are studies that show that with a CVP less than 5 during a liver resection, there are improved outcomes. Once the resection is done and there's hemostasis, you can then give the patient more fluid. All right, let's talk about what fluid to use. So you've got crystalloid and colloid. What should you use? In 1998, there was a Cochrane review which showed increased mortality with the use of albumin compared to crystalloid. But then in 2004, the SAFE study came out to kind of address this and see what was going on. Almost 7,000 patients and found no difference in mortality with crystalloid compared to colloid. Interestingly, the ratio of crystalloid to colloid to to achieve the same effect was 1.4 to 1, which was not what was expected. What was expected was 3 to 1, given that all of colloid is supposed to stay intravascular and only one-fourth of crystalloid. But as it turns out, That was not what was seen, and it's thought, actually, that there might be multiple reasons for this, and one might be the glycocalyx, which may hold on to crystalloid more than we initially thought. Then there was a Cochrane review again in 2012, and this time that review showed no difference looking at ICU patient outcomes between crystalloid and colloid. We do know from a subsect of the SAFE trial from 2004 that albumin in TBI patients, traumatic brain injury patients, does worsen mortality, and so albumin should not be used in patients with TBI. And from another subgroup analysis, looking at the patients with severe sepsis, it appears that albumin may be somewhat beneficial in those patients compared to crystalloid. In JAMA in 2013, the CRYSTAL trial was published, which looked at ICU patients with hypovolemic shock, most of whom were septic, and show no mortality benefit to albumin over crystalloid at 28 days, but maybe some mortality benefit at 90 days. So there is potentially some signal in there with septic patients, both from the SAFE trial and the crystal trial. It may be worthwhile, and that's why the guidelines recommend that in your septic patients after initial crystalloid resuscitation, you, you can consider albumin. How about another kind of colloid hydroxyethyl starches? So When I was a new resident, a CA1, we used head of starch on almost every patient. We would start resuscitating interoperatively with crystalloid, maybe one or two liters, and then we went automatically to head of starch. We'd give 500 cc's, maybe a liter of head of starch, and then we'd go give some albumin. And that was just standard. And by the time I finished residency as a CA3, we didn't even have it anymore. We never used it. So... There was a lot of movement around that time, uh, between 2010 and 2014, to stop uh, using head of because of some, some trial data showing things didn't go well. So there was a Scandinavian trial in the New England Journal in 2012 with 800 patients, which showed increased mortality with 6% hydroxyethyl starches. And then the CHEST trial was done in the New England Journal also in 2012 with 7,000 ICU patients. And this trial showed no difference in 90-day mortality, but it did show increased rates of renal replacement therapy with the use of the starches. And partly because of this, in the United Kingdom, all starch use has now been suspended and it's been restricted, at least in the United States. Interestingly, neither trial showed any difference in resuscitation endpoints. So there was no benefit to using the starch. And they also found that same ratio of 1.3 to 1 was the ratio of crystalloid to hydroxyethyl starch. So again, not the expected 3 to 1, but instead 1.3 to 1. The some of the other downsides of hydroxyethyl starches are that they can interfere with coagulation, they can accumulate in tissues, and part of that accumulation they can cause significant puritis. Alright, now let's talk about crystalloid versus crystalloid. So if we say that with except for maybe septic patients, there's not really any data to support using albumin. So we have a few options of crystalloid. I'd say the most common, certainly for us in our units at Johns Hopkins, the most common are normal saline or LR. Now, plasmalite is another one, and we used it more frequently at UCSF when I was there as a resident, but it's very hard to get at Hopkins, and so most of the time we're deciding between normal saline and lactated ringers. Normal saline, by the way, was defined as 0.9%. That was defined as normal based on some faulty experiments done in 1882 by Hartog Hamburger, Dr. Hamburger, who overestimated, based on his results, the true value is about 0.6%. He mistakenly thought it was 0.9%, and that led to normal saline being 154 milliequivalents of sodium, which, of course, is not what's in our blood. Normal saline is not a good resuscitative fluid for a couple of reasons. It causes metabolic acidosis it's associated with increased rates of renal failure and with post-op infections. There was an article in 2012 in JAMA which showed increased rates of renal failure with the use of normal saline compared to balanced salt solutions like LR and plasmolite. The metabolic acidosis comes from the fact that the strong ion difference of normal saline does not match up with our blood because of the chloride being much, much Higher in concentration than our blood. And the renal failure comes both probably from the metabolic acidosis and from the chloride load on the kidney itself. So, normal saline, not a good choice. The only times where I think it's probably reasonable to consider normal saline are in the setting of hyponatremia when you're correcting it because LR only has 130 mL equivalents of sodium, so harder to correct hyponatremia with LR than normal saline, and potentially in traumatic brain injury when you are worried about high ICP and you want the sodium to be a little higher. Other times you will hear about people saying you should use normal saline that have been debunked, so let me tell you about them. One is in a patient who is hyperkalemic, because LR has K in it and normal saline doesn't. But the concentration of potassium in LR is 4 milliequivalents per liter. So if a patient has a K higher than 4, LR will bring it down. There is, adding that 4 milliequivalents to their total body potassium isn't significant unless they have no renal function. So in a patient who is in renal failure and not being dialyzed yet, You may be able to make the argument that it's better to avoid giving them the LR because of the small amount of added K that they can't get rid of. But any patient with functioning kidneys will be able to get rid of that K. You're not going to cause their serum potassium to go up because it's only 4 milliequivalents in a liter, and so it's safe to give. It turns out, actually, that if you give people normal saline and you give other people LR, guess whose potassium ends up higher? It's the people getting the normal saline. Why? Because they get acidotic, they get a metabolic acidosis from the normal saline, and that causes potassium to shift out of cells, and that makes their serum potassium go up more than the people getting LR. So it's actually worse if you're hyperkalemic to get normal saline. Another thing you'll hear is that if you're giving blood and you're using something as a carrier, you shouldn't use LR because the calcium in LR will cause the blood to precipitate. It turns out when this has been looked at, that's only true if you're giving the blood incredibly slowly at a rate of one unit of blood over two hours or more, which we never do. So as long as you're giving the blood faster than that, you're fine to use LR as a carrier. So I'm going to summarize by giving you some of the recommendations from the New England Journal article that I mentioned by Myberg and Mytham. And they have a whole table of them. I'm not going to go over all of them now. I'll include it in the slide set, but the ones that I think are are the most interesting. So fluid should be administered with the same caution that is used with any intravenous drug. It's not a benign thing to give fluid, and that's a really important lesson that we have to learn. Consider the early use of catecholamines as concomitant treatment for shock. Don't just pound in fluids. Use pressors to limit your fluids. Oliguria is a normal response to hypovolemia and should not be used solely as a trigger or endpoint for fluid resuscitation, particularly in the post-resuscitation period, and I would add in the post-operative period, because there are other reasons to have oliguria other than hypovolemia. Next, the use of a fluid challenge in the post-resuscitation period, meaning more than 24 hours out, is questionable. So again, the thought that if someone seems dry or if someone is has low urine output, you should give them a fluid challenge. May not be the best thing because it leads to their ongoing positive fluid balance, which has serious negative consequences. Specific considerations, they also mentioned to consider saline in patients with hypovolemia and alkalosis. So again, I didn't mention this before, but one one place to think about it would be someone who's hypovolemic and they're alkalotic and you want to try to correct their alkalosis, maybe you use some normal saline because you'll benefit from the metabolic acidosis that it causes. Lots of good things to keep in mind. Remember, if you remember nothing else, that you need to think hard about fluid. When you're giving your patient fluid, realize that if they get too much, that is bad. Their outcomes are going to be worse. You have to fight against the common misconception that anyone who is hypotensive post-op, anyone who's oligarch post-op was not resuscitated well enough, that they got poor care intraoperatively because they should have gotten more fluid. That is not necessarily true. You want to be really careful with the fluid that you give. You can always give more. It's harder to take it back, and we're discovering more and more downsides of overly aggressive fluid resuscitation. That's it for this week. Remember, check out the website, acrac.com, accrac.com where you can find all the podcast episodes that I've done. You can leave comments on any episode that you'd like, and you can sign up for our mailing list for the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Woolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.